Corey, who knew you had it in you? <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. All who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. And when he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger, lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame. And the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Fred sits alone at his desk in the dark. There's an awkward young shadow that waits in the hall. He's cleared all his things, and he's put them in boxes, things that remind him that life has been good. 25 years he's worked at the paper, and a man's here to take him downstairs. And I'm sorry, Mr. Jones. It's time. Those are the opening lines to Ben Folds' song, Fred Jones, Part Two. It's about a man who's forced to retire from his newspaper job after 25 years. The song is kind of a, it's a meditation on isolation and the impact that we have on other people's lives. The song continues, there was no party, there were no songs. Because today's just a day like the day that he started, and no one is left here who knows his first name. And life barrels on like a runaway train where the passengers change. They don't change anything. You get off, someone else can get on. The song closes with Fred down in his basement, copying an image that's projected onto a plain white canvas and then Fred makes this chilling observation, a deep fear that I think many of us carry with us throughout our lives about whether those lives have made any kind of difference in the world. He 
closes by thinking he's forgotten and not yet gone. As a child, I often traveled, as many of you know, with either my grandpa or my grandmother down to Mexico. Now, I say traveled, but what I mean to say is I rode thousands of miles in a car. Driving with my grandfather from Michigan down to Mexico was often a, a real adventure. I mean, I've told you how he cooked hot dogs on the engine block and made us drink the distilled water that dripped out of the air conditioner into the bed of the Tonka truck when there was no other water around. I mean, when he drove us in the Peugeot, Grandpa welded together a, a, a fuel tank to a small trailer so he could buy diesel where it was cheapest and then make the whole trip by siphoning fuel out of a rolling diesel tank. <laughs> he also converted the 72 station wagon to propane. He could switch back and forth between regular leaded gas and propane. My, my, my grandfather never met a problem he didn't think could fix, he could fix with duct tape and bailing wire. I mean, this is a guy who treated his own prostate cancer by boiling shark cartilage into a gelatin that he mixed in with yogurt to eat for breakfast or, alternatively, give himself an enema with later. That was Theodore Roosevelt Murray. So, so traveling with my grandfather was frequently thrilling as a young kid. But more often than not, it was excruciatingly dull. And he rarely listened to the radio. And when he did, there was some kind of gospel something or other. And so I spent hours as a child sprawled out in the back of a car reading books, fighting with my brother or my uncle Juan, or, or, or playing little mind games with myself. And one of the games that I used to play went like this. I'd imagine that everything we passed in the car ceased to exist as soon as it was out of my line of sight. Like, if I turned back and I saw it still there, I'd tell myself that it had been just recreated for my benefit. I, I spent hours trying to trick the universe by doing sort of quick glances back. I catch a glimpse of the nothingness that I was sure had to be there. Of course, the central conceit of a mind game like that is that the universe is created for me. Nothing else exists except what I can see. Now, this is a typical developmental stage, at least according to Piaget, that's, it's, it's called uh, object permanence. And it's, it's something that, you know, infants, to two, year old, uh, two years old, it's something that they, 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 they go through. And it's why peekaboo is such an important game, right? It teaches children that the world continues to exist even when the child isn't looking anymore. I mean, it's, it, it's a way of learning at a very young age that you aren't the center of the universe, that you're only actually a tiny part of it. Now, it will, no doubt, come to something of a shock to you 
But I was apparently slow because I played a version of that kind of game until I was eight or nine years old. Sometimes I wonder if my life is still a more elaborate version of that same game. You ever thought about how often many of us need some kind of a grown-up version of the object permanence game? One that might teach us that no matter how special we are, we're all part of a bigger reality, one we share with everybody else, that just because we don't see another person doesn't mean they don't exist? Or as Fred Jones would say, forgotten and not yet gone. Fred Jones's great maternal ancestor shows up in our gospel this morning. No one is left here who knows her first name. Probably something like Eleanor Rigby or something like that. What we do know is that she's been suffering from a condition for 18 years that's prevented her from standing up straight. She's been bent over at the waist for almost two decades. Now, I mean, being incapable of unbending for so long, that's got to be extraordinarily uncomfortable, don't you think? I mean, I have to see the chiropractor regularly just from slouching in front of the computer for a few hours a day. Being bent over all the time, I mean, it just has to be unbearably unpleasant physically. But I mean, think about it. it, it it's not, the, not only the physical pain of not being able to straighten up. I mean, consider the emotional anguish that's involved. I mean, on the level of obvious emotional pain, you'd have to deal with the limitations such a condition would place on your ability to navigate the world. I mean, you, you can't go a number of places other people can go and do things that other people can do. Remember, there was no Romans with Disabilities Act, right? There were no special accommodations, no thought to accessibility for people challenged by a world that's been made for everybody else. It's not for you. Beyond the inevitable exclusion of living in a world where you only get a kind of a visitor's pass to a few exhibits, I mean, there's also the specific exclusion that this woman faced. See, with her particular condition, even though they might see her every day in the street, most people never saw this woman's face. The only thing they ever saw was the back of her head, hunched over. See, it's possible that she went weeks, months, years without anyone ever looking her in the eye. Now, add to that cruel, if unintentional, form of solitary confinement the prevailing theological disapproval that she must have felt as a person that everybody else assumed had been cursed by God for some sin in her past or in her parents' past. I mean, she's trapped. The Buddha fam famously said that life is suffering. Suffering is caused, according to the Buddha, by things like the trauma of birth or the pathology of sickness or, or getting old or the fear of death 
separation. Another one of the primary categories of suffering the Buddha uh, lists falls under the heading of trapped. See, the Buddha recognized that great suffering emerges from a life where you feel trapped. Being literally trapped underneath a car while changing your oil or under a boulder after you've fallen on a, in a rock slide. Or, I mean, I think we can all agree that those sound like the very definition of suffering, right? But I mean, we all know that there are other ways of being trapped, aren't there? Ways that produce the same kind of intense suffering only underneath the surface. Being a single parent working three jobs to keep your little family above water. Existing in a loveless marriage. Being stuck in a job you hate because you can't afford to quit. Being abandoned in a nursing home. Being trapped in a body that consistently betrays you. It's just another way of suffering. Suffering that enters through the doors of our lives. And the woman in this story lived trapped in a world that not only didn't want her, it couldn't even see her. But Jesus saw her. Somehow she appears in front of Jesus, stooped over trapped in a life that presumably everybody else had forgotten, even though she was not yet alone. And what does Jesus do? He heals her, of course, right? But, I mean, that's not exactly right, is it? What does the text say Jesus does? Jesus looks at her and says, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. Now, one of the main ways the Bible talks about salvation is liberation. In fact, Jesus uses the idea of liberation as the justification for healing this woman on the Sabbath, which was an infraction that had had the local religious hall monitors all twisted up in indignant knots. The leader of the synagogue was outraged that Jesus healed this woman on the Sabbath. He said, look, pal, there, there are six days on which this kind of work ought to be done. I mean, why not heal her on one of those days? I mean, we've got rules around here. Now, we should probably take just a moment to remind ourselves what the purpose of the Sabbath was in the first place. It wasn't a way to rain on everybody else's parade by prohibiting them from doing fun stuff from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. The Sabbath was originally one of the first workers' rights laws. It was intended to prevent powerful people from working everybody else to death by giving people one day when nobody else has to work. Nobody has to work. But as with so many laws that start out as a way of looking out for the powerless, this one got hijacked by the folks in charge to continue their own grip on power. I mean, there were provisions in rabbinic, uh, excuse me, in rabbinic uh, commentaries that 
allowed you to heal, to save a life on the Sabbath. Jesus even brings up these exceptions by saying, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it a way to give water to it? In other words, Jesus turns to the, the local religious leaders and, and, and he says, do you mean to tell me that you're okay with caring for your livestock on the Sabbath, but you'd prefer to see this woman suffer one more day to preserve your stupid rules? Is, is that really what you think God intended? Now, here's the tricky part that you might not quite catch if you don't know what you're looking for. There are two versions of the Ten Commandments. It was the famous one, right, in Exodus, which everybody knows. And then there's a less well-known one in Deuteronomy. Now, the Exodus version talks about keeping the Sabbath holy because God needed a day off after creating the world, right? You remember that. But the version from Deuteronomy anchors the whole concept specifically in liberation. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or your female in bondage or your ox or your donkey so that your male and female servants may rest as well as you. Because remember that you were in bondage in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You keep the Sabbath day because you were people who were in bondage one time and God freed you. And this, this law is meant to free everyone. When Jesus tells her that she's been liberated, that she's been set free, Luke gives us a clue as to which version of the Ten Commandments Jesus is working off of. See, in Deuteronomy, the reason the Israelites are supposed to observe the Sabbath isn't so that they can catalog the whole new bunch of rules to keep everybody in line. The Sabbath is supposed to be observed to remind everyone that since they all descended from people who'd been liberated from bondage, part of honoring that great gift from God was to release others from bondage. And that's what Jesus did for this woman. He saved her. He, he healed her. He set her free. And Jesus did it in a way that established his authority over the rulers of the synagogue. Now, why is that such a big deal? I mean, why is the establishment of Jesus' authority part of the point of this whole passage? Well, the simple answer is that the religious authorities who exercised great power over people's lives had used that power well, not to lead people out of bondage, to set them free. They used that power too often to keep people right where they were. In other words, the folks that God charged with bringing liberation to 
everyone were the same people who used those rules to maintain power by keeping everybody else docile and obedient. So the question that this story raises for us is where are we working to tear down the barriers put in place by the powerful, whether they were intentional or not? The barriers that serve to keep people isolated, unseen, but not yet gone, forgotten. I mean, who are the bent over people in our lives whose faces we lift to finally look in their eyes? Will we be the people God depends on to see the invisible people and to remember their first names? Because setting free the oppressed, healing the wounded, remembering the forgotten is our own embrace of salvation. Here's the thing, there's a whole world of abandoned people waiting to see how we respond. I know of at least one guy who's probably still sitting in his basement projecting an image on a plain white canvas, hoping desperately that somebody will come and find him. And I pray that's us. I pray that's us. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.